Galatians 3. It's been a deep book, hasn't it? A deep book. Um, A deep book of grace so far. Um, Heard a story about Abraham this week that he wanted to upgrade his computers to the new uh, Windows 10. I don't know if you heard about this, but uh, his son Isaac is a total uh, computer guru and said, uh, Dad, uh, you've only got the Pentium 2 processor, you've got to get the Pentium 4, and I just don't think your, your old computer has enough memory. And, you know, Abraham is such a guy that trusted in the Lord all the time. He just calmly looked at his son and said, My son, God will prepare the ram. Computer joke. Ram, ram. Anyhow, in the computer age today and in this modern world, isn't it strange to kind of be going back and like talking about Abraham and stuff that happened 4,000 years ago? And it really does seem like just worlds away. And passages like Sunday's message on Abram believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Um, You know, they seem so distant. And, you know, they might not be the seeker-friendly pill that people are wanting to swallow, you know. Maybe tastes like a Skittle, and it's like a rainbow going down your throat. And, ah, you know. But it's something, it's a passage that's going to help you grow in your knowing God and knowing how God works and how he functions and how he saves people today the same way that he saved people 4,000 years ago. And, you know, I know that you guys see the validity in going through some deep chapters like Galatians 3 and this tonight's text. Um, Next week is going to be really deep. We're going to be looking at Abraham again and the story of Hagar and Ishmael and the bondwoman and, and things like that. And so um, it's definitely so good in our growth and in our sanctification, and I know that you guys see that as well. Um, Paul, uh, before we get into verses 14 through 27, um, just a quick recap of what our chapter has seen so far, stuff that we looked at on Sunday. Uh, In verses 1 through 5, Paul makes clear a principle that you have to putt on the golf green in the same way that you drove the ball at the beginning. Like it's not a different game that we're playing here, okay? We're doing things the same at the beginning of our Christianity as we will at the end and same at the end of the beginning. We're going to be living lives of faith and trust and resting in the grace of Jesus, If you received the Spirit of God at the beginning of your walk in salvation through the Spirit and through the hearing of faith, it's the same way that you're going to continue on in Jesus, uh, making it through the gates of eternity. Uh, It will all be by the Spirit. It will all be by faith. It will all be by grace. Um, Some of the church members of Galatia had been what Paul calls bewitched. Uh, or have a spell cast over them, in a sense. They'd been behaving very foolishly. You know, believing that you start the Christian life by faith, but then you earn your salvation as you complete it out by works. One man said it was as if the Spirit was a sort of a booster rocket to get you going, but then your own engine kicks in 
and the flesh completes what the spirit began. Uh, And that is just what Paul calls a false gospel. Uh, That is an incomplete gospel. That's what he calls a perverted gospel, one that nullifies grace and dishonors Christ. The second thing that Paul showed us was in verses 6 through 9. He supports his view through using Abraham as an example. And he tells us that the only way to be a child of Abraham is to do the works that Abraham did. It's interesting that they're called works because really they're no works at all. Paul would say in Romans, uh, it's the faith that you place in the Lord. Faith that comes from the Lord, that goes back to the Lord. Uh, the third thing, it was in verses 10 through 14 that we looked at on Sunday. Uh, Paul makes the same point in a different way and says, if you try to engage in the works of the law and go back to that to earn favor with God, that you put yourself under a curse. And he quoted Deuteronomy That if you're going to follow the law, you've got to live by the law. And that means no messing up. And you will be putting yourself under a curse because you will mess up. Uh, There's no getting around it. You will mess up and a curse will come upon you. Um, Like what John Piper said, anyone who takes the gracious railroad track of the law on which the locomotive of the Spirit is pulling us to glory in the Pullman car of faith, and then lifts that track up on end and turns it into a ladder on which he tries to climb to heaven by his works, the person who does that with God's law is under the law's own curse. (laughs) It kind of puts that into a bit of an image for us to help understand If you put yourself under the curse, you will perish and be condemned. But as Sunday's text in verse 13 told us, Christ has redeemed us from that curse, the curse of the law. How did he redeem us? By becoming a curse for us. And how did he do that? Well, he quotes from Deuteronomy again, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He redeems us from the curse. He became a curse for us and he did that by hanging on a tree. Now it's not just hanging on a tree that brings the curse. That was pointing towards Jesus who would take that curse upon himself on the Roman cross made out of a tree, by the way. Um, And then we see verse 14 that the curse had a purpose. The curse of the tree had a purpose. And it was to save us. Verse 14 starts out with this word, that. There was a purpose for the curse of the tree. It was so that the blessings of Abraham, anyone remember what the blessings of Abraham were? What's that? Being sons and daughters, right, of Abraham. Uh, The blessings of Abraham were being adopted in. The blessings of Abraham were being declared righteous before God, right? Right? Uh, So the blessings of Abraham would come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Then here's the word that again. These are all purpose statements. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
So Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us by hanging on a tree so that all those blessings of Abraham that are to those who follow Abraham by faith and not just by blood, by being a Jew, all the blessings of being declared righteous, filled with the Spirit, having the Spirit work through us in power, all of those would come upon all of us yokels, non-Jews, Oregon, Pranville, Oregon, you know, Heinz 57, whatever you are, you know, you're not a Jew, you're a, you're a, a you know, a pagan, man. You are like, you are those guys that, uh, that the Romans were even afraid of that came down and would sack them, you know, in battles. And that's you, that's us. We're the Gentiles, but we get that blessing of Abraham and being declared righteous, And it's so that we would receive the promise, the promise of the Spirit, the promise of righteousness, being born again, having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, having the gifts of the Holy Spirit, having the baptism with the Holy Spirit, so that we can be bold witnesses. Um, The blessings of Abraham are so exciting. Look at how this was all prophesied uh, all throughout the Old Testament. Look at just Isaiah had some verses that, impacted me. Uh, Isaiah 42, 1. Shannon, do you want to read what comes up on the screen here? That's a, that's a messianic prophecy of Jesus right there. The anointed one, the Messiah. And what's he going to do? He's going to bring justice to the Gentiles. That is something we long for and in those far off worlds that have yet to know Jesus. Um, look at Isaiah 42, 6. Delina, you want to read that? God's plan was always to to save the Gentiles, but he wanted to use the people of Israel to do it. But the people of Israel got so so self-righteous and focused on themselves that they began to hate the very people that God had prepared for a mission field. Isaiah 49, 6, Jeremy. So that we could receive the Spirit. The Jews were to be the light so that we would receive the Spirit. And that plan failed, and then the Lord moved to the Gentiles through Saul of Tarsus and his missionary team, and now we go out to the world as lights to the Gentiles. That's on us, but we also live a life like that to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they would desire what we have. Um, The promise of the Spirit is for us Gentiles, and it's for the same purpose as it has been for the Messiah, the Anointed One, that justice would go to the Gentiles. And I like what Romans says in 3, 29 and 30. Mary, will you read this? So he's the God of the Gentiles too. He's our God. He's going to demand account of us as well. And he's going to judge us by the same way he's going to judge the Jews. Whether you're circumcised or not, he's going to judge you based on have you put your trust in Jesus. Um. So, with all of that being said, a question, it's like Paul can almost hear what the Judaizers would be thinking as they would read this, and so he kind of begins to answer questions that they may be asking. The question arises as to what is the relationship of the law now, of Moses' commandments, to those who believed? Was it all for nothing? In fact, I like the way that um, Piper put it as I read one of his sermons today. He says, I think Paul deals with a possible objection the Judaizers may have with his position. I think they may have said something like this. Well, Paul, 
we don't agree with you about Abraham. We think it was his works that showed him worthy of the promised blessing. But let's grant you your point that Abraham was justified by faith. Maybe that's the way God wanted to start Israel's history. But there's no way you can escape the fact that 430 years after Abraham, God thought it necessary to add the law through Moses at Mount Sinai. And if the law with its 600 plus commandments does not teach that our inheritance comes on the basis of works, what does it teach? When we tell Galatian believers who've begun with faith to exert their own efforts now to complete their sanctification through works of law, we're just doing what God did. He gave our people a promise through Abraham, which you say was received by faith, and then he added the law to make it clear what our part in the process is. So the course of redemptive history shows that our inheritance does come from works of the law. Why else would God have added the law 430 years later if not to make crystal clear, and get this, that we must go beyond your view of Abraham and exert our own effort in this way to earn our right to an inheritance. That's what the Judaizers were coming at Paul with. And Paul, like a masterful lawyer, and I love law dramas. That's like Lindsay and I, if we get a chance to watch some TV and watch some law dramas where there's some courtroom battles, you know, where there's just these little, all you got to do is word it just right and bam, you know, you win. And Paul is going to take what, what Paul calls a, a perversion of the gospel and he's going to correct them and their way of thinking, okay? And I realized that some of that was just like over your head and hey, don't worry about it. I had to read it like three times before it really like hit home for me too. So that's why we record things. So you can go back and listen to them or not. But here's what Paul says to them through Galatians 3. Number one, in verse 15, he starts out by saying that the law does not nullify God's promise to Abraham. The promise that came through faith. The law doesn't nullify it. It's what is called a changeless promise. Don't you like those? Changeless promises. Verse 15 says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, or I'll speak in the manner of men, or I'll put it in a way that you can understand. Thank goodness, right? He says, Though it's only a man's covenant, Yet if it's confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Okay, so he starts out by saying, to help us understand this, I'm going to talk in a way we understand. I'm going to talk contracts, covenants, deeds, and wills. Okay? I'm going to talk some legal stuff here. And he says, once a will is made final, you can't change it. Now, we all know that there's certain things that you can change about certain wills, but especially in, in the Hebrew context or in the Roman context, there were all sorts of different legal documents that you could go in and change, but there were certain wills and testaments that you could not. And we kind of know that today through, you know, what we hear of like grandma dies and the grandkids are brought in and the kids are brought in and she's like, you get this and you get this and you get this, but in order to get this, you've got to graduate college or something. And so, and, and it's like, there's nothing you can do to change that. Granny's dead. That's the way she's left it. 
No one can change that. You've got to graduate college to get the million dollar inheritance or something like, you know, so he's talking about a type of covenant that can't be changed once it's been ratified. Okay. Um, The covenant that he's referring to is from Abraham thousands of years ago, 430 years before Moses was on the scene or brought his law, 13 years before circumcision. This was a covenant that was ratified. Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There was nothing that could change that. And it says in verse uh, uh, 15, what it's getting at is that Abram's covenant with God was based on faith, grace through faith. This cannot be changed even thousand years after the fact. Verse 16 says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. Now here Paul clarifies who the promise to the nations would come through. It would not come ultimately through the people of the nation of Israel but ultimately it would become through the singular seed, Jesus. The same seed that came through Eve in the garden, that it was said that seed was going to crush the serpent's head. And in the process, his heel would be bruised. The immediate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, immediately there in the, under the star-filled sky, there was an immediate promise that was geographical and physical. And it would be fulfilled geographically and physically through the people of Israel. But that was dealing with the land of Canaan. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham was a spiritual fulfillment through the one singular seed, and that was Jesus Christ. That that fulfillment looked to its fulfillment prophetically in the person and work of Jesus. And verse 17 says, and this I say, that the law, which was for, are you guys feeling like this isn't so much a Skittle to chew on tonight as it is like, like a vitamin with garlic in it or something, you know? Okay. Still good. Still good for you. Maybe just not as tasty. So try to stay awake, people. Okay. Garlic will keep you everyone up. Um, The law, which was 430 years later, can't annul the covenant or the will or the promise or the legal document that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. So the Judaizers are asking, what about the law then? Why did the law even come? 430 years later, doesn't it cancel out the promise to Abram that God realized there had to be more given? Isn't that what was happening there? And Paul's answer is no, it can't. Because the promise was made years earlier and it cannot be changed. The declaration of Abraham's righteousness by God's grace through faith in trusting what God was going to do. And by the way, what was it that God promised? I am your shield, Abraham. I, this was actually Abram at the time. I am your exceedingly great reward. 
have you saying you're my reward? I don't have any kids. My only heir is of Eliezer of Damascus, and he's from, you know, and you know, he just starts complaining. I mean, if God showed up to me, I would probably take him in his word. No, I wouldn't. I'd be complaining about something else too. I'm childless, and I'm like 90. God, what's up? And the Lord says, hey, let's step outside. Look up. See the bazillions of stars and galaxies and Milky Ways and just all of that good stuff. I'm going to give you nations out of you that are going to be more than all of that. And how many of us would just, yeah, oh gosh, this is getting crazy. I'm 90. I don't have any kids, man. What don't you understand about this? Look at Sarah. Dinner's ready, Abram. You know, it's like, this ain't happening. But, but Abram believed the impossible. He believed the impossible. Check out Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things unseen. By it, the elders obtained a good testimony. And later on, it starts talking about Abram and how Abram believed God, even though he was as good as dead, the writer of Hebrews says. Even though he was as good as dead, he believed God. Sarah didn't believe God. Even when Jesus showed up in, a person, in, in the flesh and spoke the promise again later on, she was in a tent listening and it says she laughed. And Jesus says, why did Sarah just laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. And he says, oh, but you did laugh. And that was this awkward exchange with Jesus in the Old Testament that, yeah, laughing at Jesus in Genesis doesn't go over real well. But she laughed. She didn't even have the faith. But Abram did. And it was accounted to him. It was put into his account as innocence, righteousness before God. Sinless. Because he trusts me. He trusts in my ways. That belief was 13 years before a little act that the Jews trusted in so much. A little cutting away of the flesh. A little cutting away of the flesh foreskin of the male reproductive organ. It's called circumcision. And the Jews would take that little act and they would trust in that circumcision as if that's the key to get you into heaven. A little snip, right? Well, Paul says, why are you trusting so much in that? That's not what Abram trusted in. And he was declared righteous 13 years before the snip was ever called for. Why are you trusting in that? And why are you trusting in the law of Moses that, by the way, is much more than 10 commandments. It's actually 613 commandments. And if we can't even fulfill the 10 commandments, good luck with the 613 commandments. Yeah, you're going to do that. Why are you trusting in all that when Abram didn't trust in that and he was declared righteous 430 years before Abram even stood there with the 10 commandments on the two tablets of stone. Why are you resting in that? Go back to Father Abraham. Learn from him. Jesus doesn't say to us, once I taught you to trust me, now I teach you to work for me. Or, once I taught you to rely on grace, now I teach you to earn merit. And Jesus doesn't say to us, once I taught you to magnify me through childlikeness, 
Now I teach you to magnify yourself through legalism and self-righteousness. Those are all counter-gospels. They're anti-Christ. He doesn't contradict his covenant in this way, giving us other gospels. Look at verse 18. Take some hope in that we are moving through the chapter pretty rapidly tonight. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. The promise of salvation was never supposed to come from the law or from circumcision or any other work, but by grace, unearned favor from God. Even in Abraham's time, it's the same with us today. We see the purpose of the law in the next verse. And the first thing is in verse 19, that the law has a purpose. It is good. There's a reason that Jesus was, had given it to us. There's a reason the Old Testament gives it to us. And the first thing is that the law shows conviction of sin. Look at verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression or it was given because of sin. Till the seed should come. Who's the seed, by the way? Jesus. It was given because of sin until the seed would come. To whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Okay, we're just going to go with the main things here tonight, which are the plain things. Hearing tonight that there were 300 different ways to interpret this, and that it's one of the most complex passages in the New Testament, verses 19 and 20, we're just going to do what are called keeping the main things the plain things, and the plain things the main things, okay? And I think with simple readings with the context, um, that's not a bad way to go. The law was given because of transgression. It's the Greek word parabasis. Because God's people were stepping aside from the right track. The law came to lift the lid off of our hearts and show that we are responsible for our sinning against God. The law shows us that we have sinned against God. The law exposes the existence of sin in us and in the world. And it exposes the extent of sin in us and the world. The law shows us the the condemnation that we need to be relieved of. Before we can know that we need a savior, we need to know what we need to be saved from. And that's what the law comes to do. The law comes because of sin. It comes to show us our sin and our need for a savior. There's an old Puritan saying that you cannot sew with the thread of the gospel until you have pierced with the needle of the law. And so what you often do as a preacher, I often say, I've got bad news and good news. I want to give you the bad news first. And I often use the illustration of, of, you know, you go into a jewelry store And you do have a beautiful gem and a beautiful uh, diamond. But what's behind the diamond? A black backdrop. Okay, it's good to have a black backdrop or the bad news first. The bad news is you read the law and immediately everyone realizes, I've committed so many sins against God's law. The good news is the gem of the gospel, the thread of the gospel that follows the needle, 
that Christ came to save sinners and that he did what you could never do. The law was to be an aid in preparing the way for the Messiah to come and to deal with the issue of sin. The law was divine, actually. It was given by God, even in the way that it was given to us. And yet, in glory, it was one step behind the Abrahamic covenant from Abraham. You see, it's like the difference between a third-party call and a FaceTime Skype chat face-to-face with the person. Okay? How is that, Rory? Well, with the Abram covenant, Abram's there talking with God. And God says, all right, buddy, let's go for a little starry walk and look up in the sky together, and I'm going to talk to you. What happened with the Mosaic law? Oh, it's wonderful. It was given by angels. In fact, an angel's hand, I'm sorry, the fingers of God wrote on the tablet, but gave it to angels, to Moses, and then Moses gave it. It was a third-party call. It was, a, it was still glorious, still divine, still given by God, and yet, just Paul says, just a little bit less glorious than the wonderful promise made to Abram. Notice also it was given because of sin to show us we're sinners, and it was to only be temporary. It was till the seed came. The law had its purpose, but only up until Jesus came. He's going to use a little... Um, example of how of how that relationship ended uh verse 20 now a mediator is not mediate for one only but god is one is the law then against the promises of god verse 21 certainly not for if there had been a law given that would could have given life truly righteousness would have been by the law so the judaizers would ask is there a conflict between the law of moses Ten Commandments, actually 613 Commandments. Is there a conflict between Moses and then the promises of God and Abram? And Paul says, no. He says, if you could have been made righteous by keeping the law, then there would have been a conflict with the promise to Abraham. But because the, the point was never that we would be made perfect by keeping a bunch of commandments, there's no conflict there. There's no conflict of interest. They're given for separate purposes. Verse 22, we see a purpose of the law is that the law is like a jail. It's like a jail that imprisons us because it does not impose spiritual life. Look at verse 22 and think of it as a jail. The scripture has confined all under sin or brought all of us into jail because of sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, so the law imprisons us because of our sin. Look what Romans 7 says, verses 7 through 12. Uh, Fred, will you read these verses up here? Okay, so what Romans 7, 7 says is that the law is good and it has its purpose in that it confines us under sin. It shows us that we are sinners. He says, I would have never known covetousness because covetousness is something that happens inside here and it's not externally easy to detect. And I would have never known it unless the, the, the law told me, thou shalt not covet. And when he heard that, he said, man, that is something that is going on inside of here. I am a sinner. The law's not bad, but it's holy and it shows us that we're sinners. It confines us. In other words, it puts us in jail 
But the promise is the key to our release from jail. The promise of Abraham that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ opens prison's doors and sets the captives free. Martin Luther said, the principal point of the law is not to make man better but worse. That is to say, it shows their sin that by the knowledge thereof, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by these pains may be driven to seek grace, and so to come to that blessed seed, Jesus Christ. As you read the law, you realize that you are a sinner, you are like the prodigal son, you're eating pig slop, and you need to come to grace. You need to come to the seed. Verse 23 But before faith came, we were kept under the guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And so uh, the law was the jail, and the law was the jailer, the law was the guard, and we were kept confined. Another uh, example that Paul gives us is the picture of the law being like a harsh tutor. Okay? Um, I don't know if you guys remember the uh, Prince and the Pauper. It's an old Disney, you know, and I don't know if you remember the, the tutor who was like the cow guy, you know, or the cow person, and was um, Mickey's tutor and was like, oh, boring and had like the ruler that you'd snap the hand with, you know, that kind of, that type of person. Uh, that is what the law is like for us. By the way, what did George Washington's tutor say when he saw his report card? You're going down in history. Okay, forget it. Um, it's called a potty break or a pit stop. Anyways, verse 24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the law was our tutor, or King James Version, our schoolmaster. Okay, the law was our schoolmarm instructing us with her red pen, circling the areas of our life that showed our error, showing us that we were sinners and we were in desperate need of a savior. I found an old paper of mine from high school recently from my uh, history class, and I love history. I devour history, um, but I didn't do too great in this class. It was like college level, but I was in high school, and my teacher just ripped me apart with a red pen. And I was mad at him reading it recently. I'm like, ah, give me some grace. I was 15, you know. And uh, that's what the law does. It's like, oh, you failed again. Oh, you failed again. Oh, you failed again. Oh, you failed again. Showing us our error. It only brings condemnation. We were talking with, Ru with Russell, and he's the vice president of his class right now for like the week or something. And um, we're talking to him about, you know, being a friend to these kids and not just preaching condemnation, you know, but, you know, it just like, he's just zealous for the Lord, you know, and just frustrates people sometimes. And he's the vice president right now. And one of the kids did something he wasn't supposed to do. And so Russell, as the vice president, took it upon himself to ask if he should move the, the kid's card down on, you know, the, the, the scale of righteousness. And, uh, and everyone was mad. We're like, son, that's, don't do that. You know, like no one wants the tutor. You don't, don't want to be the tutor to these kids. You know, and, and the law is our tutor uh, to show us that we're sinners. In fact, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, would use the law to show the hearts of men to be guilty. And he would say, you have heard that it was, well, he starts out actually saying in Matthew 5.20, 
unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says, you've got to be perfect to go to heaven. The Pharisees, that's their whole life's job to get to heaven, and they're not even going to heaven. You've got to exceed their perfection. And then he goes to show them that nobody will. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and those who murder will be in danger of judgment. And how many of you do you talk to people telling them their need for Jesus? And what do they say? Wow, I've never murdered anybody, right? I mean, isn't that what you hear? I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus says, hey, if you've been angry with your brother, you've murdered him. If you've been angry with your brother, with or without a cause, you've already murdered him. How is that? Because the kernel of sin that leads us to murder is the kernel of anger in our hearts. And then he goes on to say, you shall not commit adultery. Well, I've never committed adultery. And he says, yeah, but if you've ever lusted in your heart after your neighbor's wife, you've already committed adultery with her. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. He uses the law, the tutor, the schoolmaster to show us that we're sinners. Maybe on the external, on the external, we look just fine. But inside, we've broken the law in many different ways. Uh, The next thing we see in verse 25 is that faith brings radical changes. It says, verse 25, after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Once the gospel of grace through faith comes and forgives us, we don't need our tutor anymore. Once we graduate law school and become professional lawyers and start our own firm, we don't need that tutor to keep coming into our office and correcting us. No thanks, I've graduated, I've moved on. And it's the same thing as we become born-again Christians. Um, We have no need for the law to show us that we've sinned anymore. Uh, But he also says... um, that we are all sons of God through that faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 26 says, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we go from being students under a schoolmaster to graduate and becoming sons and heirs. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now this is a very important scripture for us as far as our relationship to society and our relationships to one another. In Christ we are all one. We belong to each other. And I'm watching a CNN, don't kill me, I did say CNN, but they got some okay things to offer. Um, And it's called the 60s. I don't know if anyone's seen this. Um, There's something that really fascinates me about the 60s. And there is so much um, going on in the 60s. And you know it more than I do, many of you. Um, But to learn again about the civil rights movement and how the African Americans were treated in our nation, um, you know, 100 years after the Civil War and 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, um, having gone to Birmingham with Kevin and walking through the Civil Rights Hall of, uh, not Hall of Fame, but museum or you know yeah shame for sure um but uh and to just see how we treated um i say we because i was one of the wicked guys you know for the most part um but to see that man galatians three twenty eight tells us that that man there's an equality there uh there's a unity there among 
gender and among race and among social class, that especially as we see at the foot of the cross, the ground is level there, that there is unity. We belong to one another. Now listen to me closely. There's no racial, social, or gender uh, distinction at the foot of the cross. Now that doesn't mean that there's still not roles and distinction in roles as God has created that um, male and female and different roles within the church and within the home life. But what Jesus said in John 10, the beautiful passage about him being the shepherd, he says, other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and they will, there will be one flock and one shepherd. In this flock, there's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's Greeks, there's slaves, there's free, there's men, there's women, there's rich, there's poor, there's fat, there's skinny. It goes on and on and on and on. And man, Jesus brings unity among us. And that is all throughout the New Testament. We are one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Christ, we become sons and daughters of Abraham and as that seed, we have the same role of the Messiah is bringing hope and light to the Gentiles. One of my favorite songs that I try to teach the Nepali kids even at that time, they have no clue what it means. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, turn around, spin around, sit down. Okay, you got to do all sorts of... Father, okay, man, you guys are blank stares tonight. No one grew up in Sunday school around here? So we can set our things aside, and we'll just respond tonight to the grace of God as Ron uh, closes us in, in worship and um, big old vitamin pill tonight going through Galatians 3, but a good pill nonetheless, deep doctrine, deep theology. We can stand as you set your things aside. Man, it is the grace of the Lord that the promise that was made to Abraham that in him and through his son all the nations, all the families, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. And here we are tonight with hope with joy that we've been forgiven of our many sins, as we've looked at the law and seen that we are guilty, guilty as charged, caught red-handed, that Jesus would come and fulfill the law. He would come and live that perfect life. By God's grace, He has shown us our sin through the law. By God's grace, he's brought the one to fulfill that. By God's grace, the law provided a provision that sacrifice could be made to wash away sin and atone for sin and to bring forgiveness. And that was to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And by Jesus' love, he loved us to the end. He laid his life down as a sacrifice for our sins. Just afresh tonight, we just come to the foot of the cross 
we come and just step into the showers of grace, letting it wash us, letting it renew us, letting it cleanse us, letting it pour blessings upon us. And that will always lead to us praising God for his great plan of redemption. Let's do that tonight as we close.